I can't tell you how good it is to be here actually to see some real people. It is very exciting. And anybody who's at home, there's plenty of seats here. There's plenty of sofas. There's plenty of room. I know for me, I've thought, well, maybe if I'm, I'm missing singing quite a lot, so I don't want to take up a place that somebody else is taking, but there's loads of places. So there's, there's things that we're missing. There's things that we can't do, but there's so much that we can. Just seeing people's eyes, and I can tell who's smiling. I can see behind the mask that there's enthusiasm to be here. There's a sense of joy to be here in God's house. So let's see, how can we encourage one another to, to really start coming back and appreciating and benefiting one another? Because something happens whenever we join together in the name of Jesus, isn't that right? So for everybody who's here, it's great to see you all. And for everyone at home, it will be great to see you here as soon as you can possibly make it. Uh, these last weeks, we've been looking at the big story of Scripture. And we've been reminding ourselves that although there's loads of characters and there's loads of subplots and there's lots of books that make up the Scripture as we know it, it's all connected. It's all connected. And it's important to remember, too, that this is God's story. Sometimes it's easy for me to think that it's, it's kind of mine, but this is God's story, his narrative, and it's true. It's a factual story, not fiction. It's a narrative that in incorporates the past, the present, and the future. It answers all of our questions on origin, on purpose, on identity, and on destiny. And without wanting to spoil things, it's a story where we know the ending as well. We know what's going to happen. There's a complete certainty there. There's an inevitability about what's going to occur. This is God's story, and we've all been invited into it. And just pausing there, it is so important as well as so comforting to know that we are living in God's story. He is in control. God is sovereign. Nothing and no one thwarted or will thwart God's plan and the inevitability of the establishment of his kingdom and of the restoration of all things that he has planned. Nothing has or will thwart that occurring. Isn't that comforting to know? None of the cultural moments we've encountered as, as we've looked at the calling of, of God's chosen people and their history, none of those moments came as a surprise to God. He didn't think, oh my goodness, where did the Babylonians come from? None of it came as a surprise. He worked despite the poor decisions of humanity. He worked in the midst of whatever those cultural moments were at that time. He was always in control. And the same is true today. God is in control. The responsibility for God's story unfolding is his. COVID isn't a surprise to God. The fact that we're meeting like this, it's not a surprise. Racial injustice isn't a surprise to God. Secularization isn't a surprise to God. Questions of identity and sexuality, they're not a surprise to God. And just as in millennia past, God's deep love for all of humanity and his ongoing invitation into relationship continues unabated and undiminished today. 
So today, as we continue our journey in the big story of Scripture, it's good to keep that in mind, isn't it? This story is God's, and this story is unfolding, and we're invited to be part of it. In this time, in this, in this moment of, of human history that I, we find ourselves in. So we've seen that God's chosen nation of Israel first rejected God's kingship. They opted for a, a king of their own just because other people had it. And, and over about three generations, the kingdom turned in on itself and actually divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And ultimately, through poor decisions, again, both of those nations were, were taken off in, into captive, into exile. And down through the years then after that, because of the strategic geographic location of, of, of those nations, they continued to attract the unwanted attention of empires, of successive empires, culminating where we find ourselves today, culminating in the Roman Empire, who, who were in charge really of that whole area for about 400 years. And despite all this, God's rescue plan from humanity continued. And today, today we come to the central and most important character in that big story, and that's Jesus. Thousands of years before Jesus, back when God's perfect plan, when it became corrupted, his rescue plan was immediately enacted. And throughout the Old Testament, God's rescuer, the Messiah, was referred to on, on numerous occasions. In Genesis 3, God said this to the devil, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In the prophecy of Isaiah, we read, for a child is born to us, a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. And perhaps some of the most descriptive and most beautiful words concerning Jesus' arrival in the midst of his creation, we find those in John 1. Let me read those, John 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself wasn't the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. And yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus had come. The promised Messiah from hundreds, thousands of years before, Jesus had come. He'd arrived. God had become human. God had put skin on and moved into the neighborhood. But why? Why had he done that? Jesus came to do what was required to restore that original intimate relationship between God and mankind. And we'll look at that a bit more next week. But Jesus also came to both show and tell us how life works. Let me say that again. Jesus came to both show us and tell us how life works. The way Jesus lived on earth is, is just as important for us to grasp as what he said. Jesus is our perfect example of how life is to be lived. Jesus is the primary interpretive lens that we look through whenever we're understanding and helps trying to, trying to apply scripture in our own lives today. So continually looking intently at Jesus' life that helps us understand what those words of scripture mean as opposed to just what they say. And isn't it amazing to think out of every human being mentioned in the entirety of Scripture, Jesus is the only one, the only one that we can know today, the only one we can have an ongoing, developing, deepening relationship with. We can't do that with David or Ruth or Abraham. We'll meet them in heaven one day, but today, here and now, we can have an ongoing, deepening relationship with Jesus. I'm sure you'll agree there's a world of a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing him. So Jesus, as well as being the central character in God's big story, is also completely unique. No one else is, is fully divine and fully human. And I don't know about you, but that concept is something that as humans we cannot fully explain or fully understand, but we can accept it. By faith, we can accept it. And we can commit to continuing to seek more and more understanding as life goes on. Jesus is described in Scripture as both Son of Man and Son of God. And there are two crucial events in this big story that are recorded just prior to his public ministry starting that, that serve to demonstrate that he and only he is perfectly qualified to be entirely divine and entirely human. Son of God describes that covenant relationship identity with Father God. And it's beautifully and amazingly seen at Jesus' baptism where we read in Matthew 3. After his baptism, as Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. 
Can, can you imagine being there that day? I know often when I'm reading the stories of Jesus, part of something that helps me is actually trying to imagine myself in that situation. Heaven, heaven and earth were connected that day by the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. There was a connection made. There was a conduit created. Father God's voice heard commending Jesus as his son. The mystery and reality of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was there for everyone to see. Son of man. That describes that, that Jesus became one of us. He was born of a virgin. He was fully human. He was a baby. He, he slept. He ate. He grew. He was tired. He was fully human. He took on our nature so that he might give us his nature and so restore humanity's original rule to rule on behalf of God. Jesus' humanity was seen immediately after his baptism, whenever he was taken into the, the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days, so because he was human, he was hungry. He was in a weakened physical state, and, and it was now that the devil sought to take full advantage and really stop God's rescue plan in its tracks before it even began. It's really important to recognize just how pivotal that time was. Imagine if Jesus had succumbed to those temptations, but he didn't. Jesus' identity as the Son of God was questioned by the devil, but, but he resisted that temptation. He resisted the temptation to prove himself. The devil tried to use pride to tempt Jesus, and again he resisted. And finally, the devil sought to assume his own sovereignty over the world. And yet again, Jesus was able to resist that temptation. Get out of here, Satan, he said. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus Christ, son of man, fully human, resisted those temptations. And so he knows what it's like for us to be in situations of temptation as well. In Jesus, God and humanity were made uniquely one, as we've seen in his baptism and his temptation. And it was only now that the time was right for Jesus' public ministry to really commence and for that big story to continue. In contemplating Jesus' public ministry, rather than focusing today on his storytelling and his teaching, let's take a little time to consider how it was that he lived, how he interacted, how he went about what he did. And that shows us today about how life works. There's a few words from Jesus in Matthew 11 that help us here. He says this, let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's a deep insight, isn't it? Into the very heart of Jesus, humble, and gentle, the very essence of his character, the way that he lived in everything that he did, humble and gentle, a way of living, therefore, for all of us to seek to emulate. Jesus touched people, especially those who were untouchable, lepers, people with other diseases. He touched them, humble and gentle. 
Jesus made friends with tax collectors, with prostitutes, and with, with lots of other people that, that everyone else tended to look down on. Humble and gentle. Jesus, list, Jesus listened actively, and he looked intently at people. He had a genuine interest in all of them. Humble and gentle. Jesus walked and talked, now, never rushing. He always had time for others. Humble and gentle. Jesus wept with grieving friends and wept over a city that rejected him. Humble and gentle. Jesus washed his friends' feet and cooked breakfast for them on the beach. Humble and gentle. Jesus gave a second chance to a woman caught in adultery and a second chance to a friend who completely disowned him. Humble and gentle. In everything Jesus did, his heart was humble and gentle. And that, in turn, enabled him to hold in full and perfect balance his conviction, the truth about how life is best lived, and his compassion, his selfless love for people. And although, although that perfect balance of conviction and compassion is, is something we'll not ever fully attain to, it is something that we can and must continue to aim for with the help of Jesus in our lives. As it's something I'm sure you'll agree so desperately needed in our cultural moment, when polarization and tolerance, dogmatism and, and division are just everywhere that you look. Conviction and compassion. How do we do that? So how do we seek to be humble and gentle? How do we endeavor to balance this idea of, of conviction and compassion? And as we end, there's some words of Jesus again that will help us here. In John 14, that part of that passage where there's such an intimate insight into Jesus talking with the disciples, his friends, just prior to his crucifixion, he says this, if you love me, you'll do what I say. He says it in a few different ways, and, and that's one of them. If you love me, you'll do what I say. I don't know about you, but again, for me, it's very easy to go straight to the you'll do what I say bit. Work out what did, it, what did Jesus say, and, and I, I can get on with doing those. And that will prove my love for Jesus. And of course, it is important we continue to understand and to grasp what Jesus said so that we can apply it. But if we only do that, we'll slip into following a set of instructions, we'll rely on our own performance, and we'll feel incapacitated when we keep falling short. If you love me. That's to be our source and motivation, isn't it? Loving Jesus. Loving Jesus is the difference between actually knowing him and simply knowing about him. If you love me, you will do what I say is a bit like saying, if I plant tomato seeds, I'll get tomatoes. The second thing is a consequence of the first. If we love Jesus, we will obey him. We can't not. And again, that doesn't mean that we don't continually seek to, to look at his life and understand how we do that more. But if we love Jesus, we will obey him. So that's the place to focus rather than just onto, onto the instruction. 
If we love Jesus, we will obey him. So as we go into another week with renewed amazement about Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, what would it look like to love him more? How can we do that? The opportunity, the invitation for deepening, ongoing relationship is there. That side of it is wide open. What can we do? Just imagine how that would impact us and those around us. That's something for us to encourage one another about, isn't it? How do we keep growing in our love for Jesus and the gift that we are to one another in our families, in our communities? How do we encourage each other to do the same? And therefore, how do we live out that love? How do we demonstrate that humility and gentleness in the situations that we find ourselves in day in, day out? Sometimes I know I can get a bit stuck when, when thinking, that, how, how can I change the world? And, and because things are so big and, and challenges are so huge, it's very easy to become paralyzed. But actually, you change the world by changing the life of one person, one individual. And for all of us, we've got opportunity and interaction with many more than just one, I'm sure. That's what God is calling us to do, is to live out the love of Jesus right where we are. Right where we are. To introduce people to that love, and then by his Spirit, he will do the saving. Again, let's not take responsibility that isn't ours. God is calling us into his big story at this time. He is calling us to demonstrate that humility and that gentleness and he is empowering us to do it. So as we think about this week, let's just take some time as we, as we respond to, to be thankful for Jesus' part in this big story as we understand it even more. To reach out our, our, our hands and our hearts to him in, in love, inviting him into our situations and, and giving ourselves to him to love him more. And let us think too of some of those people and some of those situations that we're going to be walking into this week. How is it that that loving Jesus can overflow into the lives of other people by what we do? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your story. We thank you that you've invited us into it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, for coming here. We thank you for the life that you led on earth, for the example it is. And we pray for even deeper understanding as we look and see how it is that you lived and loved. Thank you for the invitation of continued relationship with you. We accept that invitation. Come and fill us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.